Before Taylor comes, we're going to read Revelation 14. I want to remind you of Revelation 1-3 where it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written. So we want you to be blessed. So we're going to read this text to you. And as our habit, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth, and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Roger. There was a day uh, toward the end of November 2022 where myself and my, my Isaac, who is seven, my Luke, who is four, were at Ellenberger Park. Ellenberger Park is a park, I'm a little turned around, just right here in Irvington. 
um, you know that there's all kinds of drilling work going on there. I'm not going to pretend to understand what they're doing down there. Some of you might know, but they are drilling hundreds of feet under the ground. Now, this happened to be the day that I took them there for a little uh, play date on an unseasonably warm November afternoon was Explosion Day. We didn't know this when we first came, but we heard about it through the whispers of other families nearby and spectators, and I kind of knew by the amount of adults that were at a kid's play park. Um, it was a little odd, but then it made sense. A loud five-minute warning goes off, followed by a one-minute warning, and the entire time my seven- and four-year-old are standing still. That doesn't happen for five minutes. But they heard about explosions coming their way. They stood there and watched, and the boys by that time, by the one-minute alarm, they were cackling with excitement. And we see from a top, we were at the top park, the bigger park, we call it the Big Kid Park, um, looking down, and we see a man with a fuse box trigger thing. So think like the cartoons with the dynamite push uh, trigger, and that's exactly what he had. And he yells at the top of his lungs, fire in the hole. And then it happened. And it actually was pretty cool. We heard explosions underneath us, like a cascade under our feet. It felt like a, a waterfall coming our way. We're dynamite popping underneath the ground, followed by loud pops all over. And we felt it. We did, we did indeed feel it. It was cool. But then it was over like that. Now, the context of that little underground explosion we experienced was dynamite, explosions, bombs, Multiple families were around. We enjoyed it. We weren't afraid of saying the words, bombs, explosions. You could say that it was the time to discuss explosions. Then I took the boys to Giacomo Upper Crust Pizza for breadsticks and homework. While there, Isaac and Luke could not stop talking about the bomb. They wanted to rewatch the video of the bomb that I had taken while we were there to capture the moment, and you can still hear it on my video. Now, people around us became increasingly worried at our talk of explosions and bombs and looking at it. So I began a lengthy chat with my seven and four-year-old, having no clue if it, it stuck, but about how inappropriate it was to, to yell the word bomb in public. Context there was key. Or you could say there was a time and a place to discuss certain realities. If you've been at New City any amount of time, you know that we are Bible people. We are Jesus followers who take the scriptures seriously, marked even by the, the fact that we stand for its reading. The scriptures are God's holy word. In the Bible, we see everything necessary for life and godliness. It is inspired, we say. We say that in the original manuscripts, it is the inerrant word of God. The Bible is the way that we know God. It points us to him, and that is how we know him. At New City, our practice is to preach successively through books of the Bible. And that is where we find ourselves this morning as we have been preaching verse by verse through the book of Revelation. Now, preaching successively through books means that we don't get to skip the hard things. We don't get to skip difficult sections or hard-to-understand portions of Scripture. And when we come to them, we handle them with honesty and with humility. Today is one such 
passage. And as a matter of fact, I perused a number of like-minded churches, websites, who have also preached on Revelation. And it was interesting to me that there is a huge gap in their sermon preaching. Usually it stops at Revelation 14 verse 5 and then picks up in chapter 17. They just skip my week this week and next week's bowls of God's wrath, 15 and 16. And I'm talking about good churches even. I'm just going to skip over that. But you could say that there is an appropriate time and place to discuss certain realities. This morning we are confronted with both the glorious and wonderful and beautiful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in connection to that, we're also going to be confronted with a weighty, terrifying, sobering news of that same gospel. The glorious and beautiful and beautiful good news of the gospel that we've been singing about this morning is that sinners like us are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Resting in Jesus alone for salvation, or to use the words of Revelation, we have been marked with the Lamb, means that we've been forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future, even the sins you have not committed yet. Forgiven in Christ. We've been adopted into God's family as sons and daughters, and we will be spared from any and all future wrath to come. Receiving Christ and trusting yourself to him means that we will live forever with the Lamb. Or as we sang, on that day we will see him shining brighter than the sun. And on that day we will know him. We know him now, but we will know him more fully when we see him in glory. But that begs the question, if that's the beautiful good news, those in Christ and those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus... What if I don't? What if I reject Christ? Now I'm good. Or what if we pick one of the other streams for life? What if we pick a different book for life and godliness? Friends, that's also the weighty and terrifying and sober reality of the same gospel. The gospel is good news for those in Jesus. The same gospel says that rejecting Jesus by refusing to trust in him and to give our allegiance to him means judgment. And again, to use the words of Revelation, all those who do not believe in Christ also have a mark. We were introduced to it last week, the mark of the beast. These are the options set before us in the book of Revelation and all throughout scriptures. It's either allegiance to and trust in Jesus Christ or allegiance to and trust in anything else. And to do the latter, to fail to trust in Christ, has eternal consequences. Namely, eternal punishment for your sin. Separation from God and separation from his church in a place commonly called hell. Both of these realities are held out for us in Revelation 14. The good news of trusting Christ and the sober reality of rejecting him and saying no. There is an appropriate time and place to discuss things though. That is what I'm going to try to do for us this morning. So, what I want you to see is that Revelation intends to teach us in chapter 14 here that God accomplishes his entire goal in history by redeeming believers and by rightly punishing the beast and his followers. 
This is the work of God in history, and this is how history is moving its way forward to its God-appointed end. It's through the redemption of believing ones. And rightly, justly judging the dragon and his beasts, the unholy trinity, and those who have aligned with him. So, I have two points for us this morning. The first one is from verses 1 through 5. And that's where we're going to see us, actually, if you didn't know it. As Roger was reading our passage, we're going to see that the people of God are secure in the Lamb. In this passage, we're going to be reminded that the Lamb, as a reminder, the Lamb is Jesus Christ. It's a picture of Him. Lamb who died to take away the sins of the world. The Lamb marks us, redeems us, and keeps us. Look again at verse 1 with me. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion, you can underline that, I'm going to make a comment on there, stood the Lamb. And with Him, 144,000, underline that, who had His name and His Father's name, underline that, written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. This is the scene. It is the scene of Mount Zion. In the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, we've seen this word a lot. Zion was the city of God. Sometimes it would speak of Mount Zion or the mountain in Zion, speaking of the temple mount where God dwelt. This is God's city, God's place. But this in Revelation is slightly different. This is not a Jerusalem scene. This is not an earthly temple scene. To quote commentator Greg Beale, who's been very helpful to me in my study of Revelation, he writes, quote, this is the end time city of God where God dwells with and provides security for the remnant who have been brought out from the earth. Friends, we are getting a little snapshot. And we're going to get multiple snapshots of this scene throughout the book of Revelation. As we've been seeing, this, the cycles of seven have been talking about the period between Jesus' first coming in his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago and his second coming that is yet future. But at the end of each of those cycles that have been looking at the church age, we have this return of the Lamb. We have this, this picture of the end from different angles. Chapter 14 here, Zion is the scene here. We are talking about the songs that we sang. The hallelujah, what a day it will be. For at home with you my joy is complete. This is that day. The Lamb standing in Zion. Standing in glory. With who? 144 now, just to, to recap, this is the same group we've already seen in the book of Revelation. Back in chapter 7, Roger preached on the 144,000 there where John has a vision and it says he hears 144,000 and he turns to look at them and it's a number that cannot be counted. We saw there that that is speaking of the people from uh, Christians from all ages. This is the same group of people, the 144,000 from chapter 7, the same group from chapter 5 where we're reminded that the Lamb purchased a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. He shed His blood to redeem us. 
That is the 144,000. It is the church, the elect, the redeemed of God, all who trust in him and are therefore forgiven, free, and restored. It's important to remember this is not a literal 144,000. It's not like if uh, we get to glory and the new heavens, new earth, as we open with our call to worship comes down to earth and we're living in glory, but roll call comes around and 144,000 and one are there. And the angels are like, oh dear, who was the last one? He's got to go. And it's not like 143,999 are only going to make it to glory and the angels are like, oh, we're one shy. Go grab somebody who's kind of Christian. We've got to get one more up here. We haven't seen literal numbers in the book of Revelation yet. This number is, has been arrived upon by the Apostle John by taking 12 and 12. 12 is the number of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, perfected by multiplying it by a thousand. It's speaking of all of God's people, past, present, and future, made up of Jew and Gentile, all tribes present. All of the believing ones in Christ. The whole point here is that this is an exact number. It's a perfect number. Every single one of God's people will make it. You in Christ will make it. No one will be left behind. We see another thing though. This this. This perfect number of the elect, the redeemed of God in glory with Jesus enjoying eternal bliss have names written on their foreheads. A mark. They've taken a mark of the Lamb on their foreheads. This should not be new to, new, to you if you've been reading Revelation or if you were here last Sunday. Revelation 13 ended with a mark, but a mark of the beast. I encourage you, if you weren't here, go back and listen to that. I'm just going to give a brief recap of the, the whole sermon that Roger uh, preached last week is commendable to you. I just want to draw your attention to that. So if none of this makes sense, go back and listen. But you remember at the end of chapter 12 of, of the book of Revelation, we met the dragon. The dragon is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. He is the accuser the enemy of God, the adversary of God. He hates Jesus and he hates you. He set out to destroy Jesus in his earthly ministry that we read about in the Gospels. However, he failed. The dragon was defeated, bound, disarmed in the work of Christ on the cross. But the dragon was enraged. Listen to verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman. That is the symbol of the church. And he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. The, the dragon is ticked. And he sets his attention on the church, the people of the risen Jesus. The last two weeks we've been in Revelation 13 describing how the dragon makes war on the people of God. It's through beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. It's through two beasts. Dragon, beast, beast, an unholy trinity set against God and his people. We saw the beast of the sea two Sundays ago is organized earthly power. It is political powers, regimes, organized earthly power set against Yahweh and his Christ. 
beast of the sea. Beast of the earth, last Sunday, we called him the propagandist of the, that first beast. The beast of the earth is ideology, the worldviews, the ways of thinking that make the beast of the sea what it is. You heard lengthy application. It was very good last Sunday. The beast of the earth is all of the isms, ologies, theories that are set against Jesus and his kingdom. Even if some of those isms and ologies and theories do rightly and, and, and in a good way cross the kingdom of God. That's the beast of the earth. It's the dragon's way of doing war. He does war with his mouth. He pours out ideologies, false ways of thinking, undermining your confidence in the scriptures. Get you looking anywhere but Jesus and the word of God. That's the dragon's work. So those who follow the beast were marked with the mark of the beast. Roger mentioned last Sunday, it's not a barcode. It's not a, a chip implanted. It's not any tattoo. At least I hope not. But to be marked with the beast is to not trust in Jesus. To have the mark is to not give your allegiance to the lamb, but to give your allegiance to anything else that's captured you. I'm saying all of that because Revelation 14, which again, the chapter breaks are unfortunate. It just goes right from 13 into this. Now look at heaven. There's a different group of people. In glory, with Jesus, it's a perfect number. No one is lost. They all make it, and they too have a mark. It's the mark of the Lamb and His Father's name. It's Jesus standing. Remember, the dragon was also standing. I found that interesting. On earth, the sand of the earth. But the Lamb is standing in victory. With all of His people, His church, complete in number, and none are lost, they have a mark as well. So friends, this is where the implication for us this morning arises. There are two options. You have the mark of the lamb or you have the mark of the beast. You trust in the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, or you trust anything else. And self-trust is over here in the anything else. You've given your hopes and your allegiance to Christ crucified and risen, or you've given your allegiance to something or someone else. And so the question for us this morning and every day is, which mark will you choose? The good news is there's still time. As Roger said last week, you can trade one mark for the other. While there is breath in your lungs, there is still time. You can rip off the mark of the beast. Put on the mark of Christ. You simply take the mark of the Lamb by trusting in Jesus alone, friends. And notice what this group is doing. This heavenly scene with the Lamb, all of the church with Him, marked by the Lamb, they are singing. They are singing. This is the right response, New City. This is the right response to all that God has done for us in Christ. It's song. It's praise. It's shout. It's yay. Praise the Lord. Well, well, Taylor, I don't like to sing. I'm more of a thinker, an intellectual. I connect with God through reading books. 
As a matter of fact, I just survive the singing portions of the church until we get to the real meat of the service, the teaching. Got to learn. Now, as an aside, I do think preaching is very important or I wouldn't be here doing it and we wouldn't have preaching central in what we do. Preaching is a major act of uh, a means of grace in the life of the church. But friends, song is not a warm-up to preaching. Song is the logical and right response when you see your sin, you see God for who he is and what he did in Jesus. How can your heart not want to sing? I didn't say sing good. I didn't say you had a good voice. I apologize, John and Justin, who I'm sitting next to this morning. I don't sing well, but friends, I can't help but sing. It's what the people of God do. As someone once said, the question is not whether God has given you a voice, but whether or not he's given you a song. And oh, has he given us a song. The song's a person. His name's Jesus. The people of God are a singing people. And I don't know why we're in this moment, in the, our, our current cultural moment, but men, I'm talking to you. This song they're singing is a new song. And they alone can sing it. Why? Because those who are not trusting in Jesus don't know this song. They don't know what it means to be dead in sin and alive in Christ. Angels can't sing this song. They simply long to look into the salvation that we have in Jesus. They can't sing it. The dragon, beast of the sea, beast of the earth, they don't know this song. Only we know that song if we know Jesus. The 144,000 is made up of all of those saved by the blood of the Lamb. They are those in verses 4 and 5, that it gets a little weird there. Verses 4 and 5 is talking about responding to the Lamb through following Him wherever He goes. And then there's language of being virgins and they have not been defiled. Again, the 144,000 are not all just unmarried people on earth. It's, it's Revelation's way of using imagery of purity, wholeheartedness. These ones that are the 144,000 were purchased by the blood of the Lamb and they followed Jesus. They listened to Him. They put their sin to death and, and trusted Christ to the best of their ability, yes, imperfectly. But allegiance to Jesus, that is having the mark of the Lamb, means we listen to and follow Him. So that's the first part, the, the good news, friends. The people of God are secure in the Lamb. We're in glory. We will be with Jesus forever, as our banners in the back say. There will be no more cancer and no more tears. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more mourning. Everlasting joy. And we're secure now. We can begin experiencing Jesus now. But my second point. That same good news has implications for rejecting that good news. Point two is that all unbelievers will suffer the just judgment of God at the close of history. Verses 6 through 20. You could further divide 6 through 20 into two parts. Verses 6 through 13 are the final warnings of the coming judgment. And then verses 14 through 20 are the execution of that. It actually getting done. These are sober things. Um, this is the just punishment of the dragon and the beasts. And all of those who have rejected Christ and said, I'm team beast, either consciously or unconsciously. This is weighty. 
The section depicts all antichrist things. Antichrist, opposed to Christ. Uh, one of the, uh, the beast is included in this. We saw, saw Babylon the Great. We're going to see Babylon in a couple of chapters. The, it's like the ungodly city. If Mount Zion is God's city where his people are, Babylon is pictured as this, this group, this city of, of ungodly people who have rejected Christ. All antichrist things, whether forces, whether nations, whether systems, or people being judged and condemned. Using elevated language, as we'll see here in a moment. We see three angels come out and, and warn of this judgment to come. That first angel comes out and says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. Stop worshiping the beast. Stop worshiping yourself. Worship the lamb. Judgment's coming. And then the third angel is the scary one. Verse 9. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, again, that's allegiance to the beast, that's to reject the lamb. Verse 10. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, was, was influential in my life, um, growing in my walk with Jesus, especially as I was going through some reforming in my faith. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I remember still where I was sitting when I read two chapters in particular. The first is his chapter on adoption called Sons of God. I still remember like the, the smells around me and the seat I was sitting in when I read that. The second chapter I remember deeply being moved by was one titled Goodness and Severity. I've used this quote before. It's the Apostle Paul commenting on Romans 11.22. It says, Behold, the goodness and severity of God. J.I. Packer writes this. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God, writes Paul in Romans eleven twenty two. The crucial word here is and. He invites us to take note of the two sides of God's character which appeared in this transaction. This transaction being believers in Rome and those who rejected the gospel in Rome. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward you, Christians, goodness. The Christians at Rome are not to dwell on God's goodness alone, nor on his severity alone, but to contemplate both together. Both are attributes of God, writes Packer, aspects, that is, of his revealed character. Both appear alongside each other in the economy of grace. Both must be acknowledged together if God is to be truly known. I don't know about you, but I want to know God. I want to have him truly known. And if Packer is right, and I think he is, then we are not to dwell on God's goodness alone. I think that's my temptation, if I'm being honest. Just kind of forget about, this. forget about this stuff. But to dwell on God's goodness alone is to get errant. 
And likewise, to emphasize his, his severity alone is also to, be, to have an errant view of God. You're going to forget his goodness. You're going to forget his grace. You're going to forget his, his forgiveness. He's going to be a cold judge and not a warm father. These verses in Revelation 14 are displaying for us both God's goodness and his severity. These verses, uh, verses 6 through 13 in particular, have been the final warning. Flee the beast. Worship God alone. Fear God and worship Him. Come to Jesus. All Antichrist things will perish. Trust in the Lord. And then John looks and sees at least what my uh, ESV Bible has as a header. The harvest of the earth. The day has come. Verses 14 through 20, we see the execution of that final judgment that was just warned about in the previous verses. This is the judgment coming on the beast. That wicked creature, ideology, the peoples throughout time. This is the, the judgment coming on the world. John uses ag agrarian language, uh, sickle, wheat, harvest, grape, gathering. But look at verses 19 and 20. I read these with trepidation. The angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, that's people, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle. These verses are not easy. I don't pretend to understand how all of this is going to work out, and I don't even fully grasp the nature of punishment in hell. When I speak of judgment and even said the word uh, condemnation and judgment and, and, and condemnation, I'm just I'm trying to stay where the scriptures are, but I don't know what all this is going to look like. But I know we're supposed to read these and not be happy. And I'm saying this um, because if you're like me, I, I have lost friends. I have lost family members. I have faces in my mind as I'm preaching this. So I'm pleading with everyone here and pleading with us this morning, this is real. I don't, I don't know what this is going to look like again, but... You have to trust in Christ. And as a matter of fact, in a room this big, especially when you multiply it by a second service, I have to wonder if some of us in here today have not trusted in Jesus. Or think that you have, but you've deceived yourself because you're actually just trusting in yourself. Your own goodness, your own performance. To use the mark, or to use the, the apocalyptic language of, of Revelation, you have the mark of the beast, friend. What is read is your future. I think the implication for us here to, to think about what I've been haunted by all week is to realize, brothers and sisters of New City, there's more going on than meets the eye. The whole book of Revelation has held that out for us. There's, there's more going on to life in this spiritual war in which we find ourselves. 
I'm not even talking about all the earthly stuff that we experience, earthly injustice or politics or divisions or, or evil or being mean or cancel culture. We do resist those, yes. And we work towards shalom or peace while on earth. But friends, that's not all there is. There's more going on. It's not all about entertainment and Netflix, kids, vacations, sports, and fun. Yes, enjoy those to God's glory. But friends, eternity is on the line. There are two paths, two gates to enter through. Two marks, two choices, two destinies. You pick. And your choices has forever consequences. Mm. I'm going to skip it. Maybe I'll give it to second service. No, I'm going to do it. Um, This is a bad idea. I, uh, I, I struggle internally with a couple of things when it comes to language. Ro- Roger shares one of them with me, at least I know, maybe he shares this one. Uh, the, the use of Jesus Christ or God as a cuss word uh, or a, a replacement for, for frustration that really burns my grits. Um, but another one that I've grown to increasingly hate is hell. I had a hell of a day. Man, you see the Super Bowl? Hell of a game. Friends, people in hell wish they had your bad day. We flippantly speak of of hell. Hmm. So I'm I'm pleading with us this morning in light of Revelation 14, reminding you that in God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore, and the offer is for you. Come, take the mark of the Lamb, entrust yourself to Christ. It's good news. But the other reality is to reject Christ is to lose everything. We've seen Revelation 14 teach us this morning that God accomplishes his goal in history through redeeming believers us, believing ones, but also through rightly punishing the beast and his followers. And God doing this is right. It's just. We talk about all things being made right a lot here. What about rape and genocide and murder and lying and commandment breaking and wickedness, holocausts and the like? This is the day it is all being made right. And it is good news for the believing ones. And it is a sober reality, and it's terrified me all week in this text. But I, I would hate for you to walk away and think that this is kind of like, you know, God's not being very nice here. This is justice. And again, I don't understand it all. But to be a faithful preacher, the scriptures talk about it, and so when we come to it, there is a right time to discuss certain realities. And the way to receive the mark of the Lamb, to trust in Him, To ensure that on that day we will see him shining brighter as the sun. And on that day we will know him as we lift our voice as one. Is to trust in him. Give him everything that you are. 
Rest in Jesus alone for salvation. He's our hope. He's our deliverance. And he is pictured for us at the communion table. The bread being a visual, visual symbol. Another sermon that is going to be preached to your other senses. Of his body given for us to make us his body. And the red wine or white grape juice. A symbol of his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. So that you and I don't ever have to experience the cup of God's wrath poured full strength in the cup of his anger. This is a, mere, a meal of celebration that should remind us of what we've been delivered from and from what we are spared. And this is a meal, friends, of all of those resting in Jesus alone for salvation. If that is you, you're trusting in Christ, yes, imperfectly, then you are welcome to come to the table because you've been marked by the Lamb. I'm going to pray for us, and then in a moment after I pray, you can go receive your elements in the back. You exit your rows this way and go receive bread and either red wine or white grape juice. Bring it back through the middle aisles to your seat, and we'll partake together in a few moments. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray that you would remind us of, of the beauty that we are marked on our foreheads with your name, Jesus and your Father's name. I pray that you would help us be a singing people who respond to the salvation offered to us in Christ through singing, through praise, and through joy. I pray that you would light a fire under us to be on mission in our world, knowing that there is more going on around us that, that we cannot see. Make us a people eager to share Christ with the lost. Help us have a sober reality, a sober acknowledgement of that day. Jesus, encourage our faith now for your glory and for our good. In your name I pray all of these things.